Well, welcome everybody that's on the phone with us, or anybody that's on the phone with us. And we're going to start this morning, go back to chapter 16, it's found in the back of the hymnal, page 678, 679, chapter 16, London Confession of Good Works. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you that once again we could study the rich heritage that we have from our forefathers in the faith. We pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to make our study a blessing to everyone who hears it and to bring glory to your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we began to study the 1689 London Confession, chapter 16 of Good Works, considered the first three paragraphs that set out the... uh, prominent features of good works, its standard role and cause. And in paragraphs 4 through 7, the confession corrects four prevailing or prevalent errors regarding good works. First of all, they can never exceed what God requires or atone for sin, secondly, or be sinless in this life, thirdly, or be done by unconverted persons, Fourthly, so they inoculate us from four errors that have plagued and in some circles continue to plague Christendom. The errors of supererogation, penance, perfectionism, and Pelagianism. So first of all, they affirm that good works can never exceed what God requires in paragraph 4. So they inoculate and protect against the error of what's called, quote, supererogation. Good works can never exceed what God requires. Paragraph 4, they who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate that's, there's the word, supererogation. To supererogate and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Supererogation, if you want to define it, it is this. It is performance of work beyond what is required or expected. Performance of work beyond or in excess of what is required. They affirm that it is impossible for Christians ever to go beyond or do more than God requires. Why is that? Well, first of all, because of remaining corruption. They appeal to Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You would be perfect, but you can't attain it. And again, they appeal to Luke 17 and verse 10. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things commanded of you, say, we are 
unprofitable servants, we have done that which it was our duty to do. No matter what we do, no matter how much we do, we have only done our duty. It's not possible for us to do more than that. And in fact, it's not possible for us even to attain to everything we should do. And so if we can't even do what we should do, how can we possibly do more than we should do? So that's the first error. It's not possible for people to do more. And then the second error, and the correction of the second error, really grows out of the first. Because if you can't do more than you should do, how can you ever make up for the bad you already did? Because you can't do more than you should do. So if you can't do more than you should do, and are responsible to do, then you can't do anything to make up for the bad you once did. It just flows right out of it. And that error that they're correcting next is the error of penance. And you would define the error of penance this way. It is, quote, a ritual in which a person receives forgiveness by performing religious duties or good deeds. So penance is a ritual of receiving forgiveness by performing good deeds or religious duties. But you can't receive forgiveness by doing good deeds because you can't go beyond what you're supposed to do. So if you can't go beyond what you're supposed to do, how can doing good deeds make up for bad that you already did? So this correcting the error of penance grows right out of correcting the error of supererogation. And these two things go hand in hand. And they say this in paragraph 5. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. We can't. And they give two reasons in order to support this idea. Two compelling reasons why good works can never merit pardon for sin or earn or merit eternal life. The first reason, and they get a little bit philosophical, theological, etc. in the first reason, and it is this. Finite creatures can't repay an infinite creator or merit anything. Rather, we already owe him perfection. So if we already owe him perfection and we're finite creatures, how can a finite creature repay an infinite creator? This is their argument. And look how they put it. They say, we cannot by our best works, merit, pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. Why? Number one, by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of former sins, but 
when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. And so they go back to the same text. Why? Because this flows naturally out of super arrogation, as we saw. If you can never do more than you're responsible to do, then not only can you not go beyond it, but you can't use it to make up for bad you did because you're already responsible to do it. So how can you merit more than what you were already responsible to do? So again, they go back to the same text, and again they appeal to Luke 17.10 for their first argument. Again, they quote Romans 3.20, Therefore by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. And again, Romans uh, Chapter 4, verse 2, Abraham wasn't justified by works. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Titus 3, 5 to 7, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And Job 22, 2 and 3, Can a man be profitable to God? as he that is wise may be profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you're righteous? Is it any gain to him that you made your ways perfect? If, if you're righteous, what, you, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Now, your wickedness may hurt a man as you are, and your righteousness may profit the Son of Man. What are you going to profit God? What does God need from you? How can a finite creature add something to an infinite God or profit him? So that's the argument. The argument is, oh, finite creatures can't add anything to an infinite God. They can't profit him at all. They can't give him something he doesn't already have. So you can't merit anything. You can't repay an infinite creator or merit anything. Rather, we already owe him perfection. So that's the first argument. But they also have a second argument. And the second part of the verse. And they say, because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they, good works, are wrought by us, they, our good works, are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they can't endure the severity of God's judgment. So why can't we merit pardon by our good works? Because any, any goodness in our good works, the merit of it is due to God the Holy Spirit. And as they're done by us, they're so filled with imperfection that they could never withstand the severity of God's judgment. So how can they merit anything from God? That's the second argument, which, of course, is a very pertinent and appropriate argument. The virtue of our good works is due to the Holy Spirit who produces them in us. And the imperfection of our good works, which means they can't merit anything, is due to us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
in Isaiah 64, 6. But all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. And Psalm 143, 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is, could be justified. And Psalm 130 and verse 3. If you, Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So those are the reasons that they give in order to say that we cannot merit pardon by doing good. Those are the reasons. That's why the doctrine of penance is false. It's false because you can never do more than God requires. And it's false because any goodness in our works is not attributable to us, but to the Holy Spirit who produces them. And the only thing attributable to us in our good works is their imperfection and remaining corruption. So those are the reasons that they give why the doctrine of penance is false. It's important to understand that, right? So they keep mentioning that our good works are not perfect. They keep mentioning that. They mention it in the first paragraph, the second paragraph. They keep mentioning it in different connections. So they feature that in order to correct the idea of supererogation. And they feature that in order to correct the error of penance. So there's something fundamentally arrogant about those two errors that fails to recognize the remaining corruption that clings to us and infects everything that we do, even the real, genuine, sincere good that we do. But that brings to the third error that they correct. And this is really, it's a balancing error to correct this shit. You don't, all right, so supererogation is wrong and penance is wrong. These are two grievous errors and they're built on arrogance and pride and failure to recognize the limitation and imperfection even of the genuine good works of Christians. And if you recognize the imperfection of our genuine good works, then you, you, you wouldn't teach either supererogation or penance. But now then you have to qualify that. Does that mean that a Christian can't please God at all? No. They also correct the error of perfectionism and they realize that this is a balancing correction to the two errors they just corrected because look how they start. Paragraph 6, yet notwithstanding. Let's not take this imperfection of our good works too far. It's true that because we can't do sinless perfection in this life, we can never atone for our own sins by doing good, and we certainly can't do more than what's required. Aye, aye, aye. But notwithstanding, let's not overreact to that and teach perfectionism. And what's perfectionism? Well, perfectionism is the concept that God as the father of his spiritual children, Christians who believe in him, can only be pleased by sinless perfection. It's, the, it's, it's a false teaching that says that God can only be pleased by sinless perfection as a father with respect to his children. You follow this? Now, how do they correct this error? Yet notwithstanding, let's not overreact, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ 
their good works also are accepted in him. God is genuinely pleased with the good works of believers, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking on them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Do you think they mentioned enough times that the good work of Christians are marked by many weaknesses and imperfections? Oh, we don't want to go to supererogation, and we don't want to go to the doctrine of penance and those false doctrines which are filled with pride. But neither do we want to overreact and go to perfectionism either and say that Christians can't please God. They can't really do anything that God regards as good, that God would accept, and that God would reward. Don't go down that road either. That's perfectionism. That's kind of like an equal and opposite error of uh, penance and supererogation. And they don't want you to go down that road either. And practically speaking, perfectionism, as we see it today, not 300 years ago, I'm not a a student of church history. That's not the focus of my studies over the years. So I can't tell you exactly what form of historical perfectionism they were addressing in the 1640s when the Westminster Assembly originally wrote this or in the 1670s when our Baptist forefathers quoted it. I, I, I don't really know. It's possible that the Socinians, which was a, 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 an erroneous group then, taught some form of perfectionism, but I, I don't actually know what type of perfectionism they were addressing and trying to deal with. I know where they were having to stand up to the false doctrines of supererogation and penance, which we know where those things were coming from. And exactly where the opposite error of uh, perfectionism was coming from back then 300 years ago, I don't know. You follow what I'm saying? Right, but perfectionism as we face it today has two forms. Right? And... uh, Either it alleges that Christians can achieve perfection in this life and live without sin. There there are groups of people that actually teach that here in the 21st century. Have you ever run into any of that? No? Or maybe they didn't get as far as Greene County. But they... They, they, certainly, they, they certainly were around 100 miles down the river in New Jersey in the 1980s. Okay? But maybe they never came up to the Catskills. I don't know. But the bottom line is there are people that teach that Christians can live without any sin in this life. They can achieve sinless perfection. Now, how do you do that? Well, you have to completely deceive yourself and redefine sin. But nevertheless, that's what they teach. But there's another... There's another form of perfectionism. 
which I, in my cheeky way, have called Reformed Baptist perfectionism. And that, I think, has not only been up the Hudson River, I think it's been all over the Reformed Baptist world. Maybe you never heard it called Reformed Baptist perfectionism before. That's what I think it is. I've run into that in Reformed Baptist churches. What does that teach? It teaches that Christians can never please God in this life because they can't in this life achieve perfection. And the confession rejects both of these expressions of perfectionism that we deal with today. It rejects both of them. And they're both built on the same false idea. And what's that? That God, as the father of Christians, is pleased with nothing other than sinless perfection. And if you're not perfect, you can't please God as his child. That's the idea. And so that cuts two ways. The one kind of perfectionism says you can achieve perfection because the Bible clearly teaches you can please God. The other says you can never please God because the Bible clearly teaches that you can never achieve perfection. You follow those two things? And the confession of faith says both those things are wrong. Perfectionism is wrong. It's not biblical. God is pleased to accept and reward. He's pleased with that which is sincere, genuine Christian, godly obedience that's evangelical, even though it's not perfect. It pleases God, even though it's not perfect. There's a tension in that. But it's a biblical tension, and we need to embrace it. So the first aspect of what the confession says is fatherly acceptance. God is pleased with the good works of Christians. It says, their good works are accepted in him. Hebrews 13.20, now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And 1 Peter 2.5, you also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Why is it true? It says, because of Christ. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, and again, but he looking upon them in his Son is pleased to accept and reward. It's because through Christ he accepts our persons that when he sees our sincere but very imperfect efforts to please him, he looks on them in his Son. And as a father, he is pleased with the sincere evangelical good works and gospel obedience of his spiritual children in Christ and because of Christ. It's because of Christ that he accepts the good works of his spiritual children. Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in 
the beloved. And how does he express his good pleasure and acceptance of the good works of his children? How does he express it? Their good works are also accepted in him. He is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. This is the amazing part. He not only is pleased with it, he commends it and he rewards it. He rewards it? Yes. He expresses his good pleasure by commending and rewarding. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you've showed toward his name. And Matthew 25.21 and 23 His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Come ye blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world because I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. He's pleased to accept it, to commend it, and to reward evangelical good works. You will be recompensed, he says, at the resurrection of the just. He says in, 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 the, in the Gospel of Luke, he tells them that what they should do is give to the poor. When you make a, a feast, don't invite people that can invite you back, but invite people who don't have anything so that you'll be recompensed, rewarded at the resurrection of the just. But you mean that when I showed hospitality, I did it perfectly? No, I don't mean that. Jesus didn't mean that. He didn't mean that your hospitality was sinless, flawless, perfect, but that God looking at our sincere gospel obedience in Jesus is pleased to accept and reward what is sincere and you will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So both of these expressions of perfectionism are wrong and unbiblical. You can't achieve sinless perfection and yet you can please God even though you can't achieve sinless perfection. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Blessed be his name. And then, not only do they have fatherly acceptance, but also the imperfect sincerity, yet the good works of Christians in this life are never sinless. They are sincere but imperfect. And this is how they put it. Yet, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, and they say, sincere, he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses. So the good works of Christians are sincere. Now what do they mean by that? They mean that they come from a, they, they're genuine and that they come from a good and honest heart. Luke 8.15 is the text they cite. And those in the good ground are such as in an honest and good heart having heard the word, hold it fast, and bring forth fruit with patience. And again, in Matthew chapter 12, 34 and 35, Jesus says to them, You offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says, The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth good things. And the evil man, out of his evil, Evil treasure brings forth evil things. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There are two kinds of heart, two kinds of people. There's evil people, wicked people in a state of sin with wicked hearts. And there's good people in a state of grace with good and honest hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And out of those good hearts come forth good works and good words. And that's what they mean by sincere. They mean they genuinely, they're genuine, and that they come out of a good heart. Good works and good words, words come out of a good heart. There's no such thing as a good heart. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, good works come out of people that have good and honest hearts. And that's part of the doctrine of Reformed Baptist perfectionism is to say that Christians don't have good hearts. And that's one of the things that's used to manipulate, browbeat, and guilt-shame Christians into being totalitarian dupes and controlled by men. You understand? Guilt manipulation is used to control people by telling them they don't have good hearts. That's a false doctrine. It's perfectionism. Jesus said, and the confession cites the text where Jesus said that good works are sincere or genuine because they come from good and honest hearts. And don't tell God's people they don't have good and honest hearts so you can guilt manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. That's a false doctrine. And our confession of faith exposes it for what it is. And yet, again, they have to balance everything, so let's, if they're going to say it three times, let's us say it three times too. The good works of Christians, even though they're sincere from a good and honest heart, genuine, are imperfect, tainted with remaining sin. And again, they quote Galatians 5.17, and they add to it Romans 7, 15, and 18. That which I hate, that I do. So that's what they say about perfectionism. Now, one more error that they're going to correct, and that's the error of Pelagianism. And they correct that in paragraph 7. Now, Pelagianism gets its name from a British monk named Pelagius who lived a long time ago, like 1,500 years ago or 1,600 years ago. And what is Pelagianism? It's the idea, the false doctrine, that all people, all human beings, are capable of earning salvation. It's sometimes been said that everybody's his own Adam with a chance to make his own choice like Adam did. And that all people are capable of earning salvation and pleasing God by their own efforts and their own works, since all people are basically good. In the state of sin, they're all basically good. And so because they're all basically good, they can earn salvation and they can do good things if they choose to do it. And that's been called historically Pelagianism. And they correct that error by saying this, that no unregenerate person can ever do good works or please God. And this is how they put it in paragraph 7. Works done by unregenerate men, although there's a concession, Although, for the matter of them, 
they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and to others. Yet, because, here's the explanation, why can't works done by unregenerate men please God? Because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor or are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God. So there's the reasons. They're therefore sinful and can't please God. Or make a man meet, suitable, to receive grace from God. And yet, here's a qualification. And yet, let me qualify that. Their, the neg their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So I see four things in this paragraph where they correct the error of Pelagianism. First, there's an assertion. Works done by unregenerate men can't please God. The primary point of the text, total inability. Then you have a concession. A balancing concession, common grace, although for the matter of them, they may be of good use to men. Then you have the explanation, the biblical explanation. They give three reasons why the works of unregenerate people in the state of grace can't please God. They're not done by faith, they're not done according to the word, and they're not done for a goodly purpose. Then the fourth thing is a qualification. Well, but let me qualify this. If they don't do it, if they don't have common grace, that's even greater sin. Okay? So you have an assertion, a concession, an explanation, and a qualification. All right. First of all, let's look at the primary assertion. The main point. Unconverted persons cannot do good works. They cannot please God. Total inability. The works done by unregenerate men are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet suitable to receive grace from God. Romans 8.8 8 is the text they cite. And they that are in the flesh, that is in a state of sin, cannot please God. Right, then they bring to us a balancing concession, which is they concede that there is common grace, although... For the matter of them, they may be things that God commands, and they may be of good use, both to themselves and to others. And they cite 2 Kings 10.30, where God said, well, Jehu, even though Jehu's heart is not right, Jehu did things that, that in the substance of them was what God wanted done in common grace, and therefore, blessing came upon him and his posterity to the fourth generation. And they also cite 1 Kings 21, 27, and 29, where Ahab humbles himself. And because Ahab humbles himself before God, even though he did, didn't do good works, nevertheless, in common grace, he humbled himself before God, and God stayed the judgment, and he didn't bring the judgment in his days, but in the days of his son. So they make a balancing concession. Then they give three reasons why the works of unconverted people in a state of sin who are unregenerate are not good works that please God. And they give three reasons. Number one, 
They're not done by faith. Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith. By faith, Hebrews 11.4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. Second reason, their works are not done in a biblical manner, nor are done in a right manner according to the word. In 1 Corinthians 13.3, the apostle says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it doesn't profit anything. If it's not done according to the word in a loving way, it's not worth anything. And they're not done for a godly purpose, nor to a right end, the glory of God. And they cite Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, 5, and 16, where Jesus contrasts the religious devotion of hypocrites from the religious devotion that marks genuine religion. When they pray, when they show benevolence, when they fast, they do it not for the right end, the glory of God, but they do it to be seen by people. That's not genuine good works. Those are the works of hypocrisy. So those are the three reasons why those that do good works in, the, in the, the matter of them, like they pray and they show benevolence. But it's not pleasing to God if they're in a state of sin, even if they show benevolence and even if they pray. And the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And how much more when he brings it with a wicked mind. So they may be praying and they may be showing benevolence. And they may even be fasting. So for the substance of it, it may be that. And yet, it's not pleasing to God because it's not done in faith and it's not done with the right, according to the word, biblically, in the right way, in the right manner. And it's not done for the right motive and the right purpose. So it doesn't please God. And that's why the confession cites that text in Matthew 6. When therefore you show benevolence, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues that they may... Why? What's their motive? That they may have honor from men. Verily I say to you, they've received their reward. And and he says it three times about praying, showing alms, and fasting. And finally, there is a needful qualification. And yet, let's qualify it, their neglect of them is more sinful. So, what if they don't pray at all? That's even worse than if they pray for the wrong reason and in the wrong way and without faith. So they can't win. Nope. Can't win. Not as long as they hate God and live in a state of sin, they can't win. Whether they pray or not, whether they pray or not. But it's worse if they don't pray, it's worse if they don't pray. Yet if they pray, they still can't win? Right. Oh, I'll never serve a God like that. Okay. All right, it's up to you. So sinners can't win. Nope. Why not? Because they're in rebellion against God. And the only way that they can ever win is to humble themselves and repent of their sin and get right with God through Jesus Christ. You can't live a life of rebellion against God and win the fight. No, that's not possible. 
So if they pray the wrong way, that's not a good work. And if they don't pray at all, that's even worse. That's what the confession says. Right? You see that? Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Because this is what you do. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you, re- you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Yeah, you should have done that, but you shouldn't have left the other undone. So, yeah, it's right that you gave tithes of all these things, but it's not right that you that you left undone getting right with God and having a good heart made right by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and repenting and believing and trusting in Jesus and getting saved. You got to, in, in other words, you're not going to ever, ever, ever be able to please God if you stay in the state of sin. Those that are in the flesh, the state of sin, cannot please God. It's not possible. And so the only way to get out of this awful mess where even if you pray and you're not praying the right way for the right motives, for the right ends, you're still not pleasing God. And if you don't pray, it's worse. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to get right with God. Don't stay in the state of sin. Get out of the state of sin. And then this whole awful problem that they're talking about goes away. Well, that's what the confession says about good works and about the prevailing errors about good works that need to be corrected. The error of supererogation, the error of penance, the error of perfectionism, and the error of Pelagianism. Right, any comments or questions about what we've looked at this morning?